So I will be reading the scripture this morning from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on all its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. One of the difficult things about the book of Ecclesiastes is the shortage of resources that are available to actually sort of do study from. There's some commentaries out there and some very short ones. When it comes to actually preaching it, dividing this 12-chapter book into a number of sermons seems to either run towards the two chapters per sermon, so 24 sermons, or sort of condensing things together. So I'm going to take that latter approach. We'll be talking about the book of Ecclesiastes between now and Advent, so just a few more weeks. And we're going to be looking at some fairly big blocks of text as we go along. So we won't be reading all of those in our normal scripture reading part, but I'd encourage you, once you've heard the sermon or even before, go home and read more. Read all the way through chapter 1 and chapter 2 this afternoon sometime and just get the flow of how Solomon speaks to the issues that he's addressing here. Now, last week we read from 1 Kings chapter 4, a biographical passage about King Solomon, the one we believe to be the author of Ecclesiastes. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So things were going well for Solomon early on in his reign over the people of Judah, and they were pretty good for Israel too. Judah and Israel, the southern and the northern kingdom, were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And in fact, beyond the territories over which he reigned directly, there were several other nations around that were tributary to Solomon. So he effectually ruled those countries as well, and things were going well, but then something happened. Things 
changed for Solomon and for Israel in a space of just four decades. And one of the questions that we have to answer as we make our way through the book of Ecclesiastes is how do you get from God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure to vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And really that journey in Solomon's own life and in his thinking, is kind of the point of the book. And we can ask the question about Solomon, we can ask the question about ourselves. How could we, who have been given so much, how could we, who have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in spite of that fact, so very often come to a place in life where everything seems without taste. I I can't remember, that's a quote, I think maybe from Marie Antoinette, who said, nothing tastes. All the joy has gone out of eating and drinking. It's just everything is bland and plain. Maybe choked out, in some cases, by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, as Jesus once said. It's a serious question. How do we go from blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing to, I am bored, I find no joy in life, I'm worried and anxious about the things that I see happening in the world around me, and I really don't find God having any meaningful part in my life. We ignore that question to our spiritual peril, because Solomon had it all. He had wisdom beyond any person before him, and God says, so I will go with this any person after him. He had wealth. If you go through 1 Kings, the early chapters, and you start breaking down the wealth of Solomon's kingdom, it was beyond our ability to imagine. He had fame. People came from all over the world. The Queen of Sheba came to talk to Solomon and to hear his wisdom, and there were others as well. And he had family, let's just say. We read last week about his 700 wives and 300 concubines, so let's just say family at this point. Solomon had it all, and he had it all in larger-than-life proportions, to say the very least. But none of it was enough to fill that soul-sucking void at the very center of his being. And so he comes to this point late in life, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now, if you're reading that from the New International Version, the text reads, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless, but that's technically not a translation. It's an interpretation And that interpretation works, but only if we're making certain assumptions about how Solomon is speaking here and what he's trying to say. If we assume that Solomon is just expressing the cry of his heart, the feelings that he personally has, as opposed to a truth that would apply beyond his own limited perspective, then meaningless, meaningless makes a certain amount of sense. But as one commentator has written, we must guard ourselves. 
Sincere and thoughtful Christians need to resist two errors of interpretation as they seek to understand this small book of wisdom. The first is that of treating the word vanity as modern existentialists would treat it, meaning absolute meaninglessness, which is something that is out there in a society. We've talked about various philosophies before, and there are people who have worked their way through existentialism all the way to nihilism who have come to the place of saying nothing has meaning at all. In the end, we are just carbon units who are animated by a certain amount of electricity. We go through our lives, we do what we do, we think what we think, we say what we say because of certain combinations of chemicals and electro-reactions in our brains. We really can't help ourselves. That's kind of a deterministic way of looking at life. And even if we could help ourselves, it really doesn't matter. Because if there is no God, then there is no real right and wrong. And if there is no real right and wrong, it doesn't matter if you're a good person or a bad person. That's all very relative. Good by what standard? Bad by what standard? And the people who hold to that have come to this place to say, everything is utterly meaningless. So it really doesn't matter what you do or what you say. Now, of course, from beginning to end, and I'm carrying on with the quote here, including Ecclesiastes in the middle, the Bible rejects this error. And further, if Solomon were arguing the absolute meaninglessness of absolutely everything, then why would we trust his argument? It, too is an argument made under the sun. How could anything, listen to how he expresses this, how could anything or any word mean utterly meaningless everything is meaningless? It's just not possible. Whenever anyone announces to you that there is no such thing as truth, you should always wonder if the speaker, the one who's telling you, there's no such thing as absolute truth, well, does he believe that statement to be absolutely true? Because there's kind of a logical problem if he's saying, this is certain, the one thing I'm certain of is that we can't be certain about anything. Well, there you go. If everything is utterly meaningless, then so is the statement, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. And if that were the case, then we may as well call it a day and go home. But vanity of vanities, which is the predominant translation into English, is not the same as utter, utterly meaningless. The Hebrew word is hevel, and it means vapor or breath. In this case, we pronounce it a little differently, but it's also the very same name that was given by Eve to her second son, Abel. And it does not rightly translate as meaningless. Even when multiplied by the hyperbole, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It doesn't translate to meaningless because that's not what the word means. The word means breath or spirit, wind. And that's not where Solomon takes us in the next verses either. He doesn't go on to point out how things are utterly meaningless. He does something different. He says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. One generation is born, another generation dies. The generation that was just born might remember mom and dad or even grandma and grandpa. 
but a day will come when there won't be a person alive on the face of this planet who remembers any one of us. A generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and then hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes round to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with hearing. So this is less about ultimate meaning. Meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. And it's more about transience. A new day dawns. The sun came up this morning and today began, but it will not last. The sun is going to go down again tonight. The seasons change. Boy, do they ever. Let's look out the window compared to what we were seeing out these windows just seven days ago. But spring follows winter and summer follows spring and fall follows summer and we come back to winter again and again and again. Rivers run to the sea. And then the water evaporates and it becomes clouds and it rains or snows in the mountains and the rivers continue to run to the sea. The same moisture that fell there before runs there again. What has been, Solomon says, is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? Now, we might feel inclined to argue because we have technology. But in reality, if you stop and think about it, our technology are really just refinements of things that have existed. There has been communication all through human history. It's a little faster and maybe more convenient or less convenient. I'm not persuaded one way or the other because of the internet and cell phones. But it's still just communication. And all of the things that we look at and say, see, this is new, are really just refinements of things that were old. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I was watching a news article, I think just this morning, or maybe it was late last night, uh, about the leader of China who had been before the current leader of China and always sat next to the current leader at meetings of the Politburo or whatever they call it over there. And yesterday, as he sat down, people came and they took him away. And now Chinese media and internet has started the purge. They're removing his name. It will be as if he never existed. This is the equivalent of, you know, Joe Biden trying to make it as if Donald Trump never existed, which he might want to do, but that's another story. But everything comes and goes, and when it's gone, we remember it for a time, and then we forget, or the next generation forgets, or history is purged of those stories. And in fact, the idea of vanity as vapor or breath was captured very well by James, the apostle, over in the New Testament. When he wrote, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, so he's not even looking at the scope of a lifetime or the scope of history. He's saying, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town 
and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. In other words, your life too is a vanity. It is a vapor, a breath. When you were walking into the church this morning, maybe you noticed or maybe you didn't, you could see your breath. You could see that little cloud of vapor every time you breathed out, but as quickly as you breathed it out, it disappeared. And this is what vexed Solomon. Not the meaninglessness of all things, but the elusiveness, the transience of all things. Like trying to capture your breath in your hands can't be done. You hold, open your hands and, and it's just gone. Solomon wrote, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. All is vapor, all is breath, and it's a chasing after the wind that blows. Sometimes you see children chasing after leaves that are blowing in the wind, and maybe they catch them, maybe they don't, but no one catches the wind. It's pointless to try. What is crooked cannot be made straight, Solomon says, and what is lacking cannot be counted. And this is the way of life in this world, or under the sun, as Solomon put it. Under the sun, all is vanity and striving after wind. And then he went on in chapter 2 to put this theory to the test. And you can read about that at home. He pursued pleasure. He denied himself nothing. Laughter was on the agenda. Maybe if we just had a little laugh track on our phone that would play once in a while when we say something, then life would be better and brighter. He pursued substance abuse. He drank wine to the point where he was drunk. He describes this. And when he had made his body physically drunk, he tried to ply his mind with wisdom. So let's get high or let's get drunk and then see if that brings some sort of clarity to the way that we look at this world and at life at this world. He tried building projects, immense building projects, including the temple at Jerusalem. You can go to Jerusalem today and you can see the remains of some of the buildings and structures that were built under the oversight of Solomon. And he tried the gathering of possessions of, of money and gold and jewels and people, male and female singers, and all kinds of concubines, as we've mentioned as well. So I became great, he says in chapter 2, verse 9 and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil, the pleasure. And then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He withheld no worldly indulgence, no pleasure was denied, and yet the older he got, the more he realized these things do not satisfy. 
after every self-indulgent meal, the amount of food that was consumed in Solomon's palace was immense. And yet you wake up the next day hungry. After every relationship, licit or illicit, in which he engaged, there was always an emptiness that could not be filled with that. And so he would turn to yet another person. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And please hold that expression as we go through the book, under the sun. The word vanity shows up, I think, 34 times, and the phrase under the sun is 28 or 29, something along those lines. So almost as often as Solomon talks about vanity, and striving after wind, he points out that this is what happens in this world. This is what happens under the sun. Under the sun, all is vanity and striving after wind because life in this world is temporary. As we will see next week, if the Lord is willing, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 opens, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. And this comes to all of us. It cannot be escaped. It cannot be avoided. And for all that we fear and loathe this reality, it's simply an inescapable truth. Eighty years seems long, I think. Sixty-one years used to seem like a long time until I got there. And I'm going to assume that those who get to 80 probably think, you know, that kind of went by in a flash. What happened? To all that time and to all the good things that were part of my life, even maybe to the bad things. It's an inescapable truth, but this is where we live. We live in this world under the sun. The sun rises and the sun goes down. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. The eye is not satisfied with seeing or the ear with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. As the man said back in the 60s, what goes up must come down. Spinning wheels, got to go round. Even so, chapter 2, verse 24, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. There's some translation issues with that verse. I don't think I will address those because it would take a fair bit of time. But essentially it's saying, you could almost say, verse 24 is saying, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. And that's true if our lives are just located here in this world under the sun, if this is all there is. If you're just dead when you die, and there's nothing that comes after, then you may as well enjoy yourself. But here's the rest of the story in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. Now catch this next verse. For apart from him, apart from God, who can eat? or who can have enjoyment. And here we get our first glimpse of the conclusion of the matter, of where Solomon is going with the whole book. And we also get a clue as to the nature of Solomon's predicament. 
Apart from God, he wrote, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Well, then why all the vanity and striving after wind that Solomon describes? Well, God had given him blessings beyond imagination, but when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So all of Solomon's searching for something that would endure, something that would last, today we'd call it a legacy. I want to leave a legacy of some kind for the generation that follows. And all of his searching for something like that was done under the sun. Yes, he was doing it in this world, as we see earlier in chapter 2 and all the different ways that he was trying. But not only was it done under the sun, it was done with a heart that had turned away from the Lord his God. And for Solomon and for us too, when we turn away from the Lord, when we stop acknowledging him as the living God and God over our hearts and lives, then what is meant as a blessing becomes bitterness. It becomes just a constant reminder that life is fleeting. I am really enjoying this amazing dinner but half an hour from now, I'll be doing the dishes. Huh. You know, everything is fleeting and the best of things in our lives. We've recently had the privilege of spending some time with our children and grandchildren. And it never ceases that when they go away, we cry. Because we've just been reminded about how far away they live and how very infrequently we see them. It's a good thing, but it reminds us of things that are not so wonderful. And if we stop to think of all of these things in light of how God is working in our lives, then even those blessings become bitterness, and the pursuit of pleasure becomes vanity and striving after wind. Solomon's preliminary conclusion then, well, chapter 2, verse 26. And this is just how we sort of carves off this first section before going on in chapter 3. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. We might be reminded of the man in Jesus' parable whose land produced plentifully and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool. Understand, and I've been spending a fair bit of time in Hebrew wisdom literature. Um, there is no greater insult that can be given in Scripture than that. Fool. Solomon says over in Proverbs, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And Jesus says, you know, um, you used to hear it said that if you kill 
your neighbor, you should be liable to punishment, but I say unto you, he who says to his neighbor, you fool, will be liable to the fires of hell. And this is God in Jesus' story saying to this man, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And indeed, in another place, Jesus said, what does it profit a man or woman either to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This is the lesson that Solomon was learning or had learned that inspired him to write this book of Ecclesiastes. And as he learns it himself, he's trying to teach others, and I suspect he's especially trying to teach his sons. He's trying to teach those who will reign in Jerusalem when he is gone, don't do what I did, don't be like I was. Because work and rest, prosperity and poverty, joy and sorrow, all of these things come from the hand of God. And he gives them to us in measure, not so that we will find comfort and satisfaction in the things of this world, but rather so we would look to him alone for all that we need in body and soul. Last week in catechism and in the evening study, we were talking about Lord's Day 1, which is probably the most familiar of all of the Heidelberg question and answers to all of us. What is your only comfort in life and in death. And I want you to answer out loud, but I want you to think about that this morning. What is your only comfort? Because there are so many things that we cling to as comfort. There are so many things which, when they're taken away, we would use that very strange word, well, this is really, I am uncomfortable. And yet the authors of the Catechism is saying there is one thing that you can cling to, not only in life through all of the vicissitudes that life may bring, you can cling to this even in your death. You belong to God, body and soul. Your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, has fully paid for all of your sins and has set you free from the tyranny of the devil, and he watches over you in such a way that not a hair can fall from your head apart from the will of your Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for your salvation if you belong to him, body and soul. God sends all of these things to us not so that we would find pleasure and satisfaction and comfort and joy here in this world and never think of what comes next, but so that we would realize that they come from his hand and we would look to him and to him alone. The pursuit of that which endures in this world is vain and futile. It is vanity and striving after wind but the pursuit of God through faith in Jesus Christ and him alone leads to a kingdom that cannot be shaken and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Even so, let's just turn aside 
from the pursuit of the things of this world, from vanity and striving after wind. And let us offer unto God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. May we pray. Father, as you have spoken through your word, continue to speak as your spirit applies these ancient words and truths written down by Solomon so long ago to our lives here in this world as we walk by faith and not by sight. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.